Health care was one of the top issues for voters in the 2018 election. Given the Trump administration's continued steps to undermine the Affordable Care Act and the lack of substantive action by Congress, some of the most important health policy innovation is now happening at the state level. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Jones, an Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Boston University School of Public Health. Dr. Jones has co-authored a perspective article about the role of the states in the future of health care reform. Dr. Jones, you and your colleagues conducted a survey asking state legislators about their health policy priorities, and then you went to Colorado and Kansas for more in-depth conversations about the results of the survey. So why did you choose those two states? What's particularly interesting about them from a health policy standpoint? Yeah, excellent question. Thank you. So Colorado and Kansas, we felt like were going to be important states to visit because they are representative of the two types of states that we're seeing in the country right now. The red states that are having debates about how red to be, are they going to be sort of more moderate or is the Tea Party wing of the party going to continue to have a stronghold? So Kansas was helping us understand that dynamic. And then Colorado is the quintessential purple state right now, where Republicans have done well, but the state-level elected officials have been Democrats, the state votes for Democrats in presidential elections. And so we feel like these two states would really give us a window into what life is like in those types of places right now. In your article, you write that access to health care, both to insurance and to providers, was a top priority for the policymakers in the states that you interviewed. Was there agreement on how to maintain and even increase access, or for whom that was the most important element, for what what part of the population that was important? Yeah, I think it's worth pausing to sort of reflect on how surprised I was when I was out in these conversations and how surprised we were in some ways by the level of agreement that we heard on access. Because I think when you think about the stereotypes of people on different sides of the aisle, the stereotype is that the left cares about access and the right cares about costs. But I think particularly of this conversation that I led, a focus group of state legislators, Republicans and Democrats from the House and the Senate in Kansas, sitting around a table together in Topeka. And I said to them that in our survey, we found that people really care about costs, but the left cares about access and the right doesn't. And some of the Republicans in the room said, hold on, no, access actually really is a major priority for us. And as I probed and explored that a little further, What I heard was that they were really concerned about hospitals in rural communities that are closing, and they felt like Medicaid, for example, would actually be a way to help save these hospitals. And so I had heard Republicans in Kansas arguing for Medicaid expansion as a way to save their rural hospitals. So when I heard agreement on access, that's largely what I was hearing, particularly sort of this rural-urban divide. It took a little bit of a different flavor in Colorado, but Again, that rural-urban division was really important in terms of access and how people thought about it. So going back to costs, you found that one of the greatest opportunities for bipartisanship on healthcare reform would be to focus on costs, but you didn't see much agreement on the root of the problem or whose costs should be prioritized. So where do you think discussions about costs are going to go? That was one of the other really interesting surprises when we actually went out and had conversations with the policymakers. From the survey, it seemed like cost was a real opportunity for bipartisan cooperation and agreement about sort of the path forward on health reform. But when you actually ask people to define what is the problem of cost, like sort of what does that mean, and try to even think about sort of what a solution might look like, 
the agreement broke down almost instantly because some people saw the problem as cost to the consumer, how much people pay in terms of premiums and deductibles. Other people saw the major problem as cost from the point of view of the hospitals or the point of view of the physicians or from the point of view of the government, sort of just the overall system. And so I think it became pretty clear that if we're going to make progress on costs, we need to have a conversation about sort of what that even means, sort of define the terms of the debate a little more clearly, um, because otherwise we're just continuing to talk past each other. You also note in your article that people on all sides expressed a desire to expand the scope of the conversation beyond insurance and medical care to the social factors that can shape health. So what actions are states taking on that front? And is there any consensus among the leaders about how to address the issue? One of the things that we heard pretty loud and clearly is that even though there was consensus on access and even though the people we spoke with really had good intentions and wanted to do health reform, that there was a concern that once the conversation sort of left the safe space of a closed door, no media, no party leadership, that we would instantly run into these ideological walls about the role of government. And so a line of questioning that I pursued with people is how we might be able to move past or avoid the walls coming up. And I was intrigued and really encouraged to hear so much agreement that if we could have a slightly different kind of debate about health reform, so that if the goal isn't sort of so exclusively focused on medical care and health insurance, which is where America's health reform debate has been focused for decades, and that if we could reform health reform so that the goal is health, then we can have a different kind of conversation. And even some of the very most conservative people I spoke with were very willing to engage on a debate about health, population health, social determinants of health, and even actually consider a role for government in doing that and sort of acknowledge that, okay, government is going to play a role. Let's make sure that sort of the role of government makes sense or is efficient. In terms of what issues people were interested in, I mean, it depends a little bit on the state and sort of what's happening in the state. But opioids, for example, is not a partisan issue. Maternal mortality and infant mortality in the United States are just shockingly high, the rates of both infant mortality and maternal mortality. And states are really looking to each other for lessons, looking to California, which reduced its maternal mortality rate in half over a short period of time really trying to figure out what they can do in sort of a space that doesn't raise partisan walls and focus on these issues. So I found that to be really encouraging from the work we did. So the election has now happened. What do the results of the election say about the role of the states in healthcare reform? Have things changed? I think we're at this fascinating moment in the evolution of the health reform debate where health reform is one of the top priorities for voters. I mean, a lot of people said they went to the polls on November 6th with health reform in mind, particularly people who voted for a Democrat. Yet, I think it's entirely likely that we just continue to have gridlock in D.C. And so I think it's very unlikely that we can expect anything to emerge from Congress. So I think the election, if anything, really just reinforced that there is a vacuum in national policymaking um, and it, it's forcing some tough decisions down the road, particularly on the left, I think, where there's a risk that Democrats will sort of box themselves into the same corner that Republicans have been in for the last few years, where the rhetoric doesn't match sort of the political realities. There's a growing interest in pursuing something like a Medicare for all or a Medicaid for all, 
sort of among the party activists, but I don't really see any momentum for anything of the sort in Congress. And I think that's likely to be true even if a Democrat wins the presidency in 2020. I think that if a Democrat comes into the White House in January 2021, they might be wise to look to the lessons of Bill Clinton in 93, 94, Barack Obama in 2009, 2010, and conclude that health reform is just unwinnable. Even if you pass something, it's really just the political system isn't designed to solve the problems of the health system. Um, And so maybe step back a little bit, which, again, just reinforces this idea that there's a vacuum at the national level and states are really poised to play an important role. In terms of what the elections mean for states, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out over the next few years. Democrats did pretty well at the state level. They took control of, I think, seven governorships in some pretty interesting states. Kansas is one of the states that we focused on in our paper. And I sort of sensed those trips to Topeka and Wichita really look to the Kansas governor's race as a bit of a bellwether for where I see the nation right now. This is a state where in 2010, they voted for a Tea Party governor who dramatically cut taxes and cut spending. And the state budget was sort of in a really bad place over the last few years. Um, So the 2018 election was a bit of a referendum on the Tea Party years in Kansas. And what we saw in the election was that moderate Republicans did pretty well in the legislature and a Democrat won the governorship. And there's a number of other examples you can point to where the moderate wing of the Republican Party sort of started to edge out from sort of the more conservative wing of the Republican Party. Or some states like California, Oregon, I think Illinois now have supermajorities for Democrats in the legislature. So I think we're seeing a little bit of a different dynamic at the state level now as a result of the 2018 elections. And it's going to be fascinating to watch how this plays out over the next few years. So we've talked about some of the benefits of this state involvement in healthcare reform. What are some of the risks? I think one of the real concerns I have is that state experimentation, state innovation will happen in ways that pull the country further apart so that states that have resources, states that have sort of a willingness to try things that expand coverage or really focus on population health will go down that road. And states that don't have a lot of resources or sort of have been unwilling to see that as the role of government will do less. And so disparities across the country will potentially be exacerbated. And I think that's something that we should be concerned about. And that's sort of just inherent in federalism in a country that is willing to allow so much state-level innovation and experimentation. But at the very least, I think this is a real opportunity for academics, for foundations, for funders to really study the effects of different policy approaches. And so we can really develop evidence now about what it means for a state to have work requirements around Medicaid or what it means for states to really focus on maternal mortality in different ways. And so I think there's a real risk of disparities, but at the very least, an opportunity for really learning from each other and understanding what these policies mean. Thank you, Dr. Jones.